All right, well, if you can make your way back to your seats, grab your Bibles, that would be great. And uh, once you get them, turn on over to the book of Micah. Um, we've been in the book of Micah. Two weeks ago, we started it. We're going to uh, tackle chapters 3, 4, and 5 this morning. And uh, we're going to aim for next Sunday, Christmas Day. Uh, tackling chapters 6 and 7, um, but we're going to do so really this morning and next week in, in broad stroke summary fashion. Um, there is a lot of detail in the book of Micah. There's a lot of prophetic detail that we could get into and we could really look at the finer details of it, but we're aiming to try to understand the broad strokes of this book and understand um, really what are the big ideas that Micah's trying to uh, communicate, what the Lord had given to Micah as something to communicate, and then we're, we're trying to understand how that connects with us, how here in 2016 in Waynesboro, uh, we're, we're not in the southern kingdom of Israel, there's not a prophet by the name of Micah running around, uh, how does what he wrote connect with us? Where may we be susceptible to the same types of errors that his fellow countrymen were susceptible to? And what might we learn from what Micah has to say about what following the Lord and glorifying him with our lives actually looks like? And so that, that really is what we're aiming to do. And so next week we'll hit chapters 6 and 7. And just really briefly, I mean, next week we're going to aim for about 15, 20 minutes in those chapters and, and just really try to understand in a broad stroke way um, what does Micah reveal to us about God? Because there's some significant things about God himself that Micah reveals very clearly for us. And we're going to aim to understand those and walk away with that. And so uh, this morning, the task before us is chapters 3, 4, and 5. So before we go any further, let's pray. And then we'll hop in to those chapters. We'll look at 3 with a little bit more detail than we will 4. And then we'll look at part of 5 with a little bit more detail as well. And still trying to trace through some of those broad strokes. But let's go before the Lord here this morning. God in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this place. The freedom that we have in this country to meet. And God, as we open your word and as we ask you to speak, we pray that we would be able to hear and understand. And so God, as we tackle and, and really dive into this Old Testament book, which can have language that, that oftentimes could be difficult to understand, as we try to figure out what, what Micah was writing some 3,000 years ago, that you may give us the ears to hear and the minds to think well and the ability to understand. And so God, we thank you that what you have written through Micah was written for our hope. It was written to be profitable for us. It was written to teach us. It was written to train us. And it is just as much a double-edged sword in your hands as any other page of Scripture. And so, God, we, we pray that your word this morning will, will do what you tell us it'll do. That it would train and equip and exhort and encourage 
and it would teach. And so, God, we pray that you'd meet with us in a special way this morning. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, I I outlined for you some goals for the book of Micah in in our three-week series in the book of Micah. And there they are again. They're on the screen for you. The first goal would be that we would see that Jesus was promised and foretold throughout the Old Testament. Now, there's some 300, if not more than 300, prophecies regarding the coming of Christ. And he fulfilled all of them. And uh, this past week on Friday, I tried to post on Facebook some of the statistical probability of him fulfilling eight of those prophecies, and then 16 of those prophecies, and then 48 of those prophecies. And if you get beyond 48, you actually lose any type of ability or reference point in what we understand to have been created. And it is just mind-boggling, if you get to 49, you lose all ability to point to anything and say, well, it's kind of like that. And 48's got a tremendous amount of struggles as well. For 48 prophecies to be fulfilled, just 48, to have one man fulfilling all 48, you would need to have every electron in the known and hypothesized universe, countable. Now, in and of itself, that is a feat that is nearly impossible. I mean, because when we talk about hypothesized universe, we're, we're talking about that, that place 200,000 million light years away that, that scientists are going, well, we think there's like 10,000 galaxies out there, and so we got to take that into account. I mean, so if you were able to somehow get all of the, the mass of the universe and dissect it and then put all the electrons together in like a giant bowl. I mean, this just gets ridiculous, does it not? Because nobody's got a bowl that big. And then you'd mark one of them, put it in this bowl and find a way to shake it up and then pick the right electron out of this bowl that's the size or larger than everything that is known about the universe. That's the statistical probability of just 48 of these prophecies being fulfilled by one person. So at that point, we lose all reference to go beyond that because even at 48, it's like, well, who's got a giant bowl that's going to house the universe? And wouldn't that bowl be and have electrons in it? Would we not have to count them? It becomes a little bit self-defeating. But that's just the odds are so staggering when you get up to just 48 But Jesus was promised and foretold throughout the Old Testament. And we need the Old Testament. We need all of God's Word, all 66 books. Second goal is that we would see there's real consequences for sin and rebellion against God. There's there's real consequences, and that's very clear throughout what Micah writes. He writes and says in the very beginning of chapter 1, Hey, everybody pay attention because the Lord's got a bone to pick, and He's going to now pick it personally with you. And it's not going to be a good day. There's real consequences for sin and rebellion. And this is exactly why Jesus came. He came because there's real consequences for sin and rebellion. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, which is the real consequence, but have everlasting life. 
which is the promise for those who would place their faith and trust in the promises of God, as Tyler just read. So there's real consequences for sin and rebellion against God. And that maybe, thirdly, we would see that God graciously exposes our sin and leads us to Himself. That we would see that God graciously exposes our sin and leads us to Himself. And that that really becomes one of the primary functions of Micah's ministry and what the Lord sent him to do. And we're going to see that in chapter 3, particularly in verse 8, where Micah identifies what the purpose of his ministry is, why he was sent, and it was for that very purpose. And the Lord uses those he has called to preach and teach his word and lead his people today in similar ways. And so I think we're actually going to see all three of these goals highlighted throughout chapters 3, 4, and 5. Goals 1 and 2 are chapters 4 and 5, and the third goal would be chapter 3. And so they're kind of in order or out of order, but we'll step into chapter 3. So let's consider what Micah 3, 4, and 5 in broad stroke fashion, what they really are, are, are communicating. And one of the challenges that we have in regards to prophetic books in the Old Testament, and in particular Micah, there is a, there, there, there is a, a, um, a movement from near prophecy to really far prophecy that happens, and it sometimes can happen in the scope of a verse, where you have one verse that talking, it, it's referencing something that's going to happen soon, and then the very next verse is talking about something that's going to happen a really long time from now. And it, it's one of the challenges that some of these prophetic books lend itself to and, and, and have in, in interpreting. And so one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to try to understand, all right, where, where is this oracle placed in, in a chronological sense? Where does this fit in God's timeline? And some of these things have been specifically fulfilled. And when Micah prophesies that Babylon's coming, we can point to Daniel and we go, well, yeah, they came and Nebuchadnezzar took them. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they were thrown in the fiery fire. I mean, that was a literal thing that happened, but it happened several hundred years after Micah prophesied it. But Micah is also going to prophesy about the birth of Christ. And that happened about a thousand years after he prophesied. And so some of these prophetic things that Micah says have a very near fulfillment, and then they have a very far fulfillment, and then some of them have a really, really far fulfillment. And they are, from our perspective, yet to be fulfilled. So that's, that's how maybe we can make some sense out of even the words that are on the screen. So Micah chapter 3 is an oracle against the rulers with a pronouncement of judgment. And there's not really a time frame given in that. But right on the backside of Micah pronouncing an oracle of judgment, which ends in chapter 3 verse 12, you go to chapter 4 verse 1 and Micah starts pronouncing hope. And he's proclaiming a future restoration of Jerusalem. So in verse 12 of chapter 3, Micah basically says uh, it's going to be a bad day for everyone. Zion's going to be plowed as a field. And then he gets to chapter 4 verse 1 and he says, well, look, it's going to come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain. And he is moving between near and far in that way. Micah chapter 4 is an oracle proclaiming the future restoration of Jerusalem and the near present judgment of Jerusalem. The tail end of chapter 4 includes specific statements about Babylon coming. And that's King Nebuchadnezzar who's going to take 
and capture that city and drag off back to Babylon slaves. Some of them we know by the name of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then Micah chapter 5, there's an oracle proclaiming near present judgment and future restoration. And some of that future restoration does include a thousand years after he writes it, the coming of Christ, but it also includes things that Christ will accomplish when he comes back. And so, it's, so there's some difficulties there when we step into prophecy in that regard. But let's go and turn our focus and attention to Micah chapter 3 here briefly, because I think Micah 3 gives us Uh, gives us two things which can be incredibly helpful for us here and now. Micah chapter 3 can reveal for us ways in which you and I can be just as susceptible to the same errors as those who were living in the southern kingdom of Israel at this point in time, some 3,000 years ago. And it also reveals to us the same types of errors church leaders can be susceptible to and then the same type of faithful ministry church leaders are to have. So you can see on one hand, the, the, the broad scope of, of God's people can be susceptible to a particular type of error, which we would see as true whether it was 3,000 years ago or today, but then God's leaders, those he has called to lead his people, can either do so in a way that honors him, in a way that's very clearly revealed by Micah to do so, or in a way that dishonors him and leads the people astray, which we can also see at play here in today's world. And so there's really nothing new under the sun in that regard, and Micah's got some really stern language on behalf of the Lord to say. So let's go to chapter 3, verse 1, and let's just step through and consider what Micah is saying. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So Micah's talking to the church leaders. They're not a church at that point. He's talking to the leaders of God's people. That's who he is speaking to at this point. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love the evil. So right off the bat, we can see that these church leaders who should have known justice have inverted and perverted justice. They have called evil good. They have called good evil. They have flipped upside down the very things that God has revealed in His Word. And yet these were the very people that were called upon and called out by God to take His Word and say, wait a minute, no, this is good and this is evil. And there's a very clear clear line defining each of those, and we need to stay away from the evil, and we need to pursue the good, and they, they flipped that on its head. They inverted that. They perverted God's justice as those who were called out by God to rule with justice. And we can see those very same things if in today's world, excuse me. So continuing in verse 2, Micah is going to use some really graphic language to describe what these leaders are doing. Who tear the skin off my people, the flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin off of them, break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's really graphic language, and it describes in in function and in essence what the Lord 
sees these leaders of his people doing. It's as if they are treating his people like wild beasts who have been caught for the purpose of food. They have been caught to be devoured. And he uses this language to speak of the process of what you would do with, a, with, a, with an antelope that you'd catch or any type of indigenous mammal that you would hunt down and then prepare to eat. And he says, your practices are very similar. In verse 4, there's a pronouncement of judgment here. It's not the sternest one, but it is a significant one. Then they, these leaders, will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, concerning the prophets. These were people who, like Micah, were called out by God to speak on behalf of God. We know that Isaiah was another prophet at this time during Micah's ministry and that there was overlap. So not every prophet in Israel at this point was evil, but there was a significant number of them who were. And Micah now is going to speak directly to them on behalf of the Lord. So concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him. Who puts nothing into their mouths. See, if we go back to actually chapter 2, verse 6, you're going to see a little bit more of what the prophets were doing as well. The context of chapter 2 is in regards to wealthy individuals in the nation of Israel, in the southern kingdom of Judah, stealing property from those who didn't have the means to stop them. And we have in specific references in verse 9 of chapter 2, those individuals without means to stop them being poor widows and fatherless children. And you have wealthy individuals, wealthy uh, people that are coming in to steal their property and the prophets are actually telling Micah, stop telling them that this is wrong. Verse 6 of chapter 2 says, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. There was a sense and an understanding that that these prophets weren't willing to stand up for what the Lord had revealed in His Word and say, you know what, no, that's wrong. And so the Lord's taking issue with them. And here we get a little bit more detail in verse 5 of chapter 3 about what these prophets were doing. And here what Micah articulates for us is that these prophets who were called out by God to speak the word of God were willing to say good things to those who would come and give them money. But if somebody was unable to give them money, they were pronouncing judgment on them. They were crying peace when they have something to eat, but declaring war against the one who was unable to put something in their mouth. They were speaking for a prophet. They were very purposefully desiring financial or material resources to say either peace or war. So the Lord says, therefore, verse 6, it shall be night for you, 
without vision, darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, the diviners put to shame. They all shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So these men who had been called out by God to speak for God, who were unwilling to do so, God just simply says, that's it, I'm going to pull the curtain, and we're going to be done with that group of individuals. It was a couple of weeks ago, we, um, and by we I mean the elder board, was, uh, we were meeting on a Wednesday night, and we, we meet once a month on a Thursday, and then two weeks after that, once a month on a Wednesday. And uh, on that Wednesday night meeting, which is a little bit more geared towards prayer and Bible study and, and thinking through and just, just really petitioning the Lord for different things that come up, um, we, we stepped into Micah 3. And we did so because um, in, in, in really a parallel sense, Micah 3 has tremendous things to say to us as the leaders of Grace Church. I mean, we're not prophets in the sense that we're not waiting for the Lord to reveal something that, that then gets shared. I'm not waiting for Him to speak new revelation to me next week for the Christmas morning service. Uh, but we are prophets in a sense that what the Lord has said, we've been called to say. And we've been called to say it without apology and say it with lots of grace and lots of mercy and, 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 and do it in a way that, that's, that's, uh, that's gracious and, and loving to people. But God has said things and we need to be willing to say them. And we stepped into Micah 3 because there's, there's a lot of parallels between how a, a, a group of leaders called out by God to lead his people can, can really get off track very quickly. And these leaders, as we'll even see a little bit further at the tail end of verse three, chapter 3, were very, very willing to accept bribes to dismiss the actions and sinfulness of the people. As long as their bellies were full, as long as they had material resources, they didn't really care what the people did. And the Lord's got big issues with that. And that's a temptation. I can see, you can see that there. You can trace that throughout the rest of the scriptures. There's a temptation there that God's leaders would be beholden to financial gain to such a degree that they would be unwilling to speak what God has said if it causes them potential loss. We have in 2 Kings the Lord saying, and this is this exact time period when Micah's ministry took place. That he warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. And said, turn away from your evil ways. Keep his commandments and statutes in accordance with all the law that I have commanded. And that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. See, the Lord was sending men and individuals and leaders to this people this group of people, for the purpose of pleading with them to turn, and they were unwilling to do so. There was also another group of people that were in the midst of the people of God who were saying, you know what, no, what you do doesn't matter. You know, I just keep our bellies full, keep our bank accounts healthy. What you do doesn't matter. But from God's perspective, it matters greatly. And we see that contrast now in full effect when we get to verse 8 of chapter 3, where Micah speaks about his ministry. 
But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So there's a contrast between the ministry, if you even can call it that, of these false prophets, of these men who were unwilling to speak for God, what God would have them speak, and Micah, who was willing to speak what God would have him speak. And notice what Micah says. Notice what his ministry is. Okay, First of all, it's a ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. God himself, through the Holy Spirit, is giving Micah the power and ability to accomplish the task before him. And that task is done with justice and might. Micah has strength to uphold justice. Where these other leaders were subverting and perverting and inverting justice. In Micah's ministry and the purpose of his being sent, just as 2 Kings 17 tells us, is to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. See, folks, there, there should be, and we, we talked about this um, as leaders, there, 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 should, there should be a couple things that are always true of any time we gather in God's word. One should be, we should consider the, the real consequences for sin and the ways that we are all tempted to not follow the Lord. And we should equally then consider and celebrate God's grace and mercy despite our failings. And if we lose either one of those, we, we get off track pretty quickly. And if, if your leaders are unwilling to say, wait a minute, this is good and this is evil and you need to keep them very separate. And instead we just take a message that, you know what, God's love and he's, gonna, he's just cool with everything. Like he's like a big old surfer dude sitting up there in heaven. He's just good, brah, you know, like he's, he's all right. We just take that perspective. We have failed in the way that these false prophets did. Their bellies were full, their bank accounts had good balances, and they were good, and they didn't want to disrupt anything that might cause them personal loss. But God sent Micah in there because his people needed somebody to stand up and go, wait a minute, no, there's some good, and there's some evil. We need to understand those things. And I would submit to you, God does the exact same thing through his leaders that he calls out today And us understanding what Micah's ministry looked like matters greatly if we are to have a faithful ministry. And you need to hold us to that. You need to demand that from us. In verse 11 of chapter 3, we see a little bit more of what these leaders were doing. The heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. That would be like us saying to you, It doesn't matter how you live, because you're here on Sunday. It doesn't matter what you do tomorrow, because you tithed. It just doesn't matter. God's going to be happy with that, because He's just a really generous, benevolent, loving grandfather up there, just ready to say, It's cool to everything. They were presuming upon the grace of God. 
and doing so in disastrous ways. And as a result, Micah says in verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The Lord's just going to lay waste to everything. So there's real and serious consequences to sin and rebellion. And God has given His people leaders and He has called out individuals to lead His people so that they may not, they may not disregard what the law has said or what the Lord has said. But we see this trace itself through the New Testament. And so real quickly, I just want to show you, real briefly here, throughout the New Testament, the exact same thing that Micah speaks to here in the Old. In Acts 7, you have Stephen at the very end of the speech that got him killed, speaking to this group of religious leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in hearts and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So notice here for a minute how Micah's ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And here these leaders, they're resisting the Holy Spirit. That contrast is significant. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. See, see the parallels in, in the errors? The unwillingness to acknowledge what God has said? Well, it continues in Acts 20. Paul speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus. And he's saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See again the Spirit and his activity in this. He did so to care for the church or to shepherd the church, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you and your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the temptation for there to be individuals and the reality for there to be individuals that that somehow begin even from within God's church, leading his people astray in similar ways as the false prophets did in Micah's day, is real. But then if you begin to look at what Paul said in his two letters to Timothy, we see what his words in Acts 20 are played out. And I'm not going to read this whole thing, but here's the context Paul's speaking to and writing about individuals from within the church in Ephesus that began to teach for money. They began to amass crowds of people who would give them money, and then these teachers would tell them, what you're doing is okay. It's all right. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's the exact same, the exact same failure point as what Micah speaks to in chapter 3. Priests teach for a price. Prophets have good things to say when their bellies are full and they've got bad things to say if somebody's not there to bribe them. That's what leads Paul to say, for the love of money is the root of all evils. 
But again, it continues. Same church. Same individual writing a letter to the same young pastor whose name is Timothy. And he's going to say, the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But have itching ears and accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions. See, the people are they're going to end up just going to wherever they need to go so that what they want to do is just given a stamp of approval. It's the exact same way that we see the failure point being in Micah chapter 3. And we need to learn from these things. I mean, your leaders need to learn from these things to, to not make these mistakes and to understand that though apparently there, there's a real and ever-present temptation and danger amongst the elders who have been made elders by the Holy Spirit to do this. So we've got to pay careful attention. But that's then why you're going to hear us talk about sin a lot and hopefully grace just as much because we have to have both. Well, it's in Micah chapter 4 then that there's an oracle pronouncing the future restoration and judgment and near present judgment of Jerusalem. And I'll be honest with you this morning, we're not going to do anything with Micah 4 other than make that summary statement, okay? Here's where I believe Micah 4 is actually placed in a a chronological way. You've got the first seven verses of Micah chapter 4, I believe are in reference to what is referred to as the millennial kingdom. Now, what's the millennial kingdom? That, that is a yet-to-happen, thousand-year period of time where I believe the Scriptures teach that Jesus will physically, bodily reign here on earth from Jerusalem. Now, there are good Christians and believers throughout the entire world that will believe that as well and also disagree with that. And so I want to just reference and, and acknowledge that, that there's disagreement about the, the, the way end times events look and the exact nature of them. But I would believe that Micah 4 is in reference to this thousand year period of time where Jesus will come. He will reign and rule from Jerusalem as king. And so that's what Micah 4 I believe, is in regards to. And then where Micah goes next in verse 5 is in regards to a very, very specific prophecy about the coming of Jesus. And so let's go to 5 and let's look at that together. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you... O Bethlehem, Paphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until this time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So what Micah says about the coming of Jesus, and here's where one of our goals connects with that, that we want to see that Jesus was promised and foretold in the Old Testament. 
Jesus himself said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, which is the Old Testament scriptures, because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And he speaks that to a group of individuals who are unwilling to recognize that it is in Jesus Christ where eternal life is going to be found. And so he says, look, you look in the Old Testament, which they wouldn't have considered old at that point because that's the only one they had. So you look in the scriptures because you think that they have eternal life. And what's implied there is you're correct. And you miss the fact that they bear witness to me. So I want us to see that. I want to see where the scriptures, the Old Testament, bears witness to Jesus. And here's what Micah says, that Jesus will come from Bethlehem. He will come and be a ruler for the Lord. His coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So, so a ruler is coming, but he's from ancient of days. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. His people shall dwell secure, for he shall be great. He shall be their peace. These in specific reference to the coming and ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, eight prophecies. If Jesus were just to fulfill eight, the likelihood of one man fulfilling eight prophecies is 100 quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion. Now, I did some math earlier this week trying to get my mind wrapped around what that would look like. Here's, here's one way to consider that. If you took all circulating currency in the United States, which at this point is about $1.48 trillion as of October 20th per the Federal Reserve's website. If you took that $1.48 trillion and you just converted it all to single bills, so you have 1.48 trillion single dollar bills, and then you multiply that by 700,000, you now have roughly 100 quadrillion. So if we were to just use money as an example, just convert all the American currency to single dollar bills, you would need 700,000 Americas in the circulating of their currency to be able to even have the opportunity to pick the correct marked $100 or $1 bill out of that lot. And those are staggering. Staggering. I, I brought with me 800 quarters here. $200 in quarters. Mike, I'm not going to drop them. You look like you're ready for like a photographic moment. Just <laughs> Should I throw them up? Just see if I can catch them? Hey, all right. Yeah, what are the odds of being able to do that? Um, all right, 800 quarters. And if I drop these, it's going to be. So I just want you to see what, what $200 in quarters looks like. There's 800 here. Here's, here's a marked quarter. You're more than welcome to come on up and fish around in there and Take your aim at pulling out the correct mark quarter. One out of 800 odds. See how you do. I had thought about just dropping all of this in the offering basket and making the people who count the money just hate me. <laughs> but it's just 800. 800. 
All right, if we go up to 16 prophecies, and I got to look at my notes to figure out what, what, how you even pronounce the word for this number. Um, it is quattro tiro decillion. One quattro tiro decillion. Okay, that's the probability of 16 prophecies being fulfilled. It's one times 10 to the 45th power. So there's 45 zeros on the screen. Now, if we were going to do the math and, and try to understand what that would look like, if we had silver dollars, so now we're working with silver dollars, and you had a giant bowl, and you were able to put silver dollars in that bowl, you would need a bowl that was 545 million times the size of our sun to be able to put enough silver dollars in the bowl to give it a shake and then pick the correct silver dollar out of the bowl. 545 million times the sun. And I didn't do all of that math myself. I contacted a really, really smart mathematics teacher friend of mine um, who took surface area and radius and multiplied it by pi and did all sorts of stuff that he just sent me the answer. Um, So it's a staggering, staggering picture. And we can't even get our minds wrapped around that. Can't even get our minds wrapped around eight. I mean, we're close to maybe understanding eight, but 700,000 Americas, we're not, we're not doing that real easily. But I want you to see what 48 prophecies look like. I, I told you earlier about counting all of the electrons in the known and hypothesized universe. That is quinquagintillion. No, I'm sorry, it's not even that. Quinquagintillion is 10 to the 153rd power. So there's 153 zeros up there. 48 prophecies being fulfilled is actually 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So you'd have to add um, a few more zeros to get to that. And they don't actually have a name for that number. Um, It's just staggering. Staggering. But here's... Here's one of the other staggering things. And we've got to go to Matthew chapter 2 to see this. Matthew chapter 2. Looking in verses 1 to 6. Matthew records, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise, man from, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and all of the scribes of the people, so these were all the religious leaders, that's who Herod got together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here's the other staggering thing. And it's the same error that those who lived in Micah's day made. It's the same error that we ourselves can find ourselves making. And it's exactly what is very plainly spelled out here that Herod 
and all of Jerusalem made. They were able to clearly discern where the Christ was to be born because they were able to look in the Scriptures and understand the prophecy Micah gave. But what was their response? They were troubled. It wasn't good news for Herod. It wasn't good news for all of Jerusalem. We don't have all of the backstory and context as to exactly why that wasn't good news. We know Herod was threatened. We know he tried to kill all of the babies or young boys that were born within a certain time frame in Bethlehem because of this prophecy. But he was troubled. Herod and all of the religious rulers, the very best that Jerusalem had to offer, all of the church or the, all of the religious rulers who were able to look into the scriptures and discern where the fulfillment specifically of prophecies made a thousand years before had taken place, respond by being troubled. Folks, you and I can clearly know exactly what Christmas is about and still find ourselves troubled and unwilling to recognize that the good news is for those who believe and place their faith and trust in the promises of God. That wasn't Herod. According to Matthew, it wasn't all of Jerusalem. They were troubled and unwilling to recognize the fulfillment of what God had prophesied a thousand years before as the good news that Israel should have been longing and waiting for. And so there's the question for us. Is Micah's prophecy, is the Christmas season, is the manger and the reason why Jesus came good news for you? Or is it troubling? Because it may mean that you're being called away from a life of living how you want because your deeds have been evil and not good. And God's called me to ask you that question. In the same way he called Micah to ask those people pointed questions. The truth is that Jesus will reign forevermore. And one day every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And they will declare Jesus as Lord. Those who have placed their faith and trust in the promises of God on this side of eternity will stand in celebration of His Lordship. Those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, their knee will still bow, but it will be in their condemnation. They will fully recognize that Jesus was Lord but it will be to their demise. So this morning, are you troubled by Christ and Christmas, or is it good news? He's going to reign forevermore, and we're going to sing about that. I'll be in the back if any of you would like to speak with me. and Come on out during the song, and we'll talk a little bit more about this if you'd like. Would you stand, please?